Welcome to Stay Reading, a modern take on the book club. I'm Chris Penrose. And I'm Megan Yuri Young. On today's episode, we have Mark Nobetta and Allison Outhead. I'm really excited about this conversation. Mark is one of the most passionate people I know. He is also a marketing and branding strategist in the city. Allison is the vice president of Six Shooter Records. She has decades of experience in the industry. She's a lawyer and she's a mentor to so many women coming up in the music business. Welcome to Stay Reading. Thank you. Hi. Hi. Um, before we get into the stack of print that we all brought into the room, we have a question we start with. What kind of reader are you? So, Allison, can you tell us what kind of reader you are? I think, I, I think I'm a zigzag reader. <laughs> I love the descriptions we're getting. I love them. Okay. Because I, I have to, I mean, obviously I read a lot for my job. I mean, we're all constantly reading. And then I read a lot for pleasure. But I also read to self-educate. And I find that I, in 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 the course of all of that, I kind of, I I tend to zig from one thing to another, and that will make me think, ah, oh, that's interesting. I got to dig a little deeper in that, and then I zag over there, and that includes everything from like fiction to essays to online stuff, like all of it. Just boop boop boop. I follow a weird path. I know. I think like when that's me, but not when it comes to print. Print, I love to finish something beginning to end but when I'm online I'm like oh yeah I have to click on that and do this and so that's I love it zigzag reader mm-hmm. I've read the first third of more books than I've read <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and, they're, and they're usually underlined Mark that's, what that's, kind of reader are you? That's a strong statement uh, I'd say I'm a random reader mm-hmm. and and by that I mean you know I look at the flow how I read during the day uh, it's, it's steady but it's different formats and it will always be from a variety of topics to your point like the morning will always be probably like newsletters that I have signed up for and so these articles are there and whatever will be skimmed down to me that I'll take a look at the news app on any iPhone is great too as well to mm-hmm. aggregate news to be able to read in the morning and then through the day it'll just be stuff that people will send you and be like oh have you seen that Barney's is closing or like mm-hmm. this thing is dropping I was like there's a great article on ESPN about which is one of them like about you know young basketball players getting into the league and getting hurt and then in the evening it will traditionally be what I've been reading and yes a lot of it will be piecemeal a pile right. of books but I bet it's just like okay what do I feel like reading tonight and then getting through it uh, but yeah I'd say random yeah, that makes sense. I think it's great that you start your day reading news websites because I start my day reading the actual newspaper. Like I'm one of the eight people in the city of Toronto <laughs> <laughs> who still subscribes to the print. And I'm and I'm mad about that because there's no newspaper. Uh, there's no access to newspaper on my way. I live in Regent Park, and there's no newspaper access between my place and the streetcar. Oh. So that's why I read the news app. But on weekends, I. I go to my favorite diner in the world, both on Saturday and Sunday. That's my splurge. And I sit there and I read the newspaper. And it drives mm-hmm. my partner crazy because <laughs> yeah, all she wants to do is talk. So like, <laughs> sitting there like, yeah, yeah I've, have I've you seen that, this? I've been that guy um, in like chorus with the family. And they always have the newspaper at the front. And we're like, I'm trying to read the paper. Yeah. And we got, two, you know, two children now, three, like. Yeah. clamoring for attention it's kind of order. sacred space I think like yeah. the Saturday newspaper mm-hmm. and it has yeah. been like my whole life even from when I was a kid right that when you're like oh, I don't care about all that but you could at least get the comics yeah. section or whatever well I come from a crossword family so oh, yeah. yeah my grandfather oh, yeah. would read the sacred. paper yeah like back to front I mean front to back oh my lord yeah. uh, <laughs> it's early for me okay well. guys and um 
and then but obviously it would always end with a crossword and my aunt's a crossword um, and that's how I became a reader too just from my family but I think of the paper and I associate it with my grandfather and I do always have a twinge when I wake up in the morning and I go out from my apartment and I see the paper in front of people's doors mm. I'm just like I have to subscribe even if I don't read it, I don't I just want that connection mm. with but I, I also just need to read the news more. That's something I, it's always been a challenge for me. I'm very, um, I'm a very fictional reader, creative mm-hmm. reader. Um, and then like, I'm a learner. But when it comes to the, the daily, yeah, daily events, I don't, I, I don't participate as much. What I've found particularly useful is getting that fed over to you from newsletters. Mm. And I think if it's sent to you and it's aggregated in a format, you will get that information kind of from well, What if you have like a bad relationship team. with your email? Let's jump into yeah. this one first. Um, let me hold this up. So this is Sports <laughs> Illustrated, Toronto Rapture, Kyle Lowry on the cover, mm-hmm, hugging... Mm-hmm. With like just pure joy and pure delight, joy. the Larry O'Brien trophy. Um, I got FOMO the moment I saw um, Sports Illustrated post this cover yeah. on Instagram, and I was going to like every bookstore that I passed trying to find a copy. When I saw yeah. one store that had a stack on my bought a pair of them, um, so you can have one. Mark. I know. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate that. I- but the. Um, I mean, first and foremost, this picture of millions of people on the streets in Toronto. Were you you there? Oh, he was on the bus. You were not. He was on the bus. On one of the buses. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I was in the street with three children. Um, I was. I saw you. Yeah. I I tried to get a photo of you, but uh, you were being doused in champagne. It was was, (laughs) the most exhilarating time ever. And, you know, again, I have to to thank Shelby and my partner for, you know, bringing myself and a lot of her friends to this she moment. She gets a ring, right? One. Pardon me? She gets a ring? She gets a ring. Wow. So she works she um, for That's the Raptors amazing. as a player um, player manager. Uh, manager of player development. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was, it's, you know that I'm not a crowd person. Um, so to be on a to be on a bus with like a crowd around, but you know to be with at least you had that like yeah kind of sanctuary just to be your situation for sure. But it, just the energy of the city yeah. uh, on that day is not something that one would ever take away from us. Like regards to lose Kawhi, things will change. Mm-hmm. We may have tough seasons. Things are gonna but those moments, especially I all I kept looking for and looking at are the young kids in the crowd mm-hmm. who have just discovered ultimate joy from sport. Mm-hmm. And I've seen a huge change just in Regent Park and in my neighborhood, the number of kids who had the basketball courts. Like, I'm not talking 14, 15, who may mm-hmm. not be exposed to the game. I'm talking six, seven-year-olds mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. who mm-hmm. would go down to the basketball court where I go and shoot, you know, attempt to still have something <laughs> and are now shooting with their father, their yeah. mother, and just being there. That's that's what that change is. And that's what that day meant. I've uh, seen it. I have a seven-year-old and a five-year-old and... For sure. Like, their connection to the game. My son's even, like, asking me about, like, isn't there basketball in the summer? I'm talking about summer league. He's like, I want to watch it. Like, you know, like, last year, there was no questions about, like, can we watch, you know, summer league in Las Vegas? But I wanted to share two little um, quick passages from this. So this is a really interesting story about Kyle Lowry. Um, I've never really dove into um, his background. Mm -hmm. But there was this time where he's, he's in Houston. There's a coaching change. Kevin McHale comes, um, and immediately it just goes sour. And um, Kyle Lowry says, where is it? I didn't buy in. I have to apologize to Kevin. I didn't know he was trying to coach me at the time. I didn't understand it. 
And then, um, you know, just like that humility of, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, but then also th- there's a college coach talking about him and just how much when he's playing at Villanova, he said he just loves having his back against the wall. At Villanova, every time we went into a road gym, as a staff, he would say, thank God we have Kyle Lowry. Um, because he, we knew he loved to play on the road. He loved everybody being against him. And we all knew it. And I just thought that this was um, like a really cool window into Kyle Lowry. What, what do you, like, do you know this about him? Or oh, how does yeah. that resonate? <laughs> <laughs> so, like, let me tell you. Number one fan over here. <laughs> No, you know, uh, I started, so my husband and I have uh, season tickets, so uh, at least we've had a share of them. We're the the primary owner of the tickets, and we share them with a couple of friends, and we've done that for, like, I think eight years now. Mm -hmm. You trying to get anyone else in on that? (laughs) No, because that that stuff is solid gold now. (laughs) And it actually was a bit of a problem when when they, remember that time we made the NBA Finals? Like, when the the playoffs were unrolling, like, being fair about Mm -hmm. how you distribute those Mm -hmm. tickets, it was a bit of a challenge. Luckily, we still have all the same friends we started with. <laughs> but it was tough. But, yeah, I mean, I, I I have come, like, as a fan of the team, have come to have, like, such profound respect for Kyle Lowry in particular. And, I mean, it was amazing. It was, like, fantastic, amazing. And we got a lot. There's a, a lot of incredible guys on that team. I'm a huge mm-hmm. Serge Ibaka fan. And, by the way, I brought him to the team psychically. Just so <laughs> 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 it was more like, what's <laughs> Um, and not for the best reasons, I admit, but because <laughs> once you see that man in oh, a suit, you're my like, gosh, no, I, that's what no, I was going right? to say. There's so no I, going I can't back. participate too much in this conversation, but I can participate <laughs> in the suits and oh, he's a cutie. Be still. Anyway, uh, but Kyle is such a he's such a soldier. You know, he is so he just grinds it out and he takes the every charge and every hit and is just yeah. like. I mean, the guy, you know he's got a bad back. You know he's hurting, but he falls on his ass. Like, how many times a, a game? Like, he's just epic. And I have such uh, in, incredible and profound respect for that guy, for what he's willing to do yeah. to push his team forward. Like, he's a role model for all of what us. Is, what character, you know? Yeah. To, and uh, someone who takes charges so regularly yeah. at his size in the NBA. Like, that just speaks volumes. Um, let's go to Mark. What do you... What do you have? You have um, some books in your lap. Right? Oh, I have. Yeah, I have a few things here. At, like what do you want to jump I'm, into first? I'm a random reader, so <laughs> a lot of things come up. But I think you know a good segue from that would. I didn't print the articles because I'm trying to be very aware of the environment. Um, <laughs> one thing I did read very recently was an article that someone did send me, that was on ESPN, by Baxter Holmes, uh, which is about the rate of injuries for young basketball players. Mm. And so, the same way we look at Kyle Lowry. Uh, you look at the lifespan and career of young basketball players right now. Uh, the article is called "These Kids Are Taking Time Bombs: The Threat of Youth Basketball," mm-hmm. and with the development of the AAU circuit and you, like you know youth basketball to a certain degree, how a lot of these athletes are not given a fair shot to mm-hmm. having a, a healthy, long NBA career. Mm-hmm. And the causes, you know, it's a great sort of breadth of article, and it you know it taps into quite a number of orthopedic uh, physicians, and and Kobe Bryant even uh, chimes in. It's how much are we putting young athletes through Mm -hmm. to chase the dream Mm -hmm. earlier than ever before? Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, to hear a doctor at one of the most formal sports medicine clinics in Atlanta saying that he has 11-year-olds with ACL tears (sighs) is is something that just sort of gives you chills right off the bat. But the the root causes, no one can can actually identify what the root causes are or where 
repercussions or responsibility should lie. The NBA, you know, Adam Silver is very vocal about um, that being a great threat to the talent level in the league. Mm -hmm. The AAU system is upheld by, you know, a number of teams, a number of circuits that just allow for those kids. And it's, a, it's chasing that dream, right? So it's more opportunities for kids to get out there. Bas youth basketball is the highest, has the highest level of enrollment of any youth sport in the States because football obviously is declining due mm -hmm. to the risk of uh, head injury. Yeah. Right, head injury. So that a lot of NFL players that have come out and said, they, I'm not letting my children Absolutely. play professional football. Right, but it's a hyper-specialization now. If this kid, and that's the exact term that's coming in there, is hyper-specialization. Like, mm -hmm. kids are only playing basketball yeah. from 10 to 18 for... A thousand games is what someone estimated. Between twelve and eighteen, you could play a thousand games. That's more than an NBA player perhaps plays in quite a yeah. solid career. And sometimes well, careers. Yeah. The thing I think of, and again, I come from kind of like a. I don't. I, I mean, I love sport. I love basketball. I love the Raptors, but I still come from like a different background. But my whole thing is, yes, there's a system and there's like all this in place, but the parents. Yeah. Like, it's the parents. And, like, I know we have, like, our, you know, our soccer moms and our stage moms and, like, all the... And, and so there are parents that put their dreams on their children or they mm -hmm. see the talent and, and I get it. I understand that you want to foster it. But at the end of the day, it's, like, these are children. They don't know any better. Like, they don't know any better. And so you would hope that their coaches or the system could benefit them. But at the end of the day, it's the parents. Well, I think one of the challenges, though, too, is, like, the infrastructure yeah. whenever i have like a pain in my hip or shoulder and it's not mm -hmm. going away i'm i actually always think i wish i had those like doctors and physio people that the nba because <laughs> they have this infrastructure yeah. that knows right. how to take care of the body where you know you go to your your own family doctor and it's like oh, i don't know what it is but i think that that element of it too um is it's a big thing is like it's expensive infrastructure mm -hmm. to really monitor and take care of um your body properly in addition to yeah hyper specialization is mm -hmm. is, mm -hmm. is dangerous um I, I was at canada basketball for an internship years ago and one of the pieces of research that came out was 10-year burnout in mm -hmm. any high performance sport you do any sport for 10 years at high at a high level um you on average, you burn out in 10 years. So if you start at 12 years old, yeah. you know, at a high level now, you're like, you know, all around competing tournaments and all that. Yeah. By 22, the average person is is, is done with the sport. Mm. Um, Allison. Yeah, well, I kind of I kind of feel like, um, you know, uh, people like Masai Ujiri can take a lead in that. And he probably mm. does. I, I haven't read the article, but mm. I wouldn't be surprised to, to see a, a name like his turn up in, in it because he's one of the... He's the rare executive who I think probably is thinking about things mm. like that because I think beyond being basically the best guy on earth. <laughs> <laughs> Say that again. Say he's, that again. <laughs> the best guy on earth. He's also, I think, has shown himself to be really meaningfully engaged in the quality of life yeah. mm -hmm. of the players that he either is mm -hmm. actually directly working with or is developing, like through the Giants of Africa program mm -hmm. and all of that stuff. He's... He's got an eye out for talent, but he's also got an eye out for taking care mm -hmm. of the players in a way that's yeah. actually meaningful. And so I think people like Masai and, you know, other owners and mm -hmm. and uh, coaches and, and uh, people with power and influence in the league, in all sports really, mm -hmm. have to make it a point to take care of the kids. Like, yeah. absolutely. And in life, because like I think what the common thread that I'm hearing is just like seeing people as humans right yeah. not as dollar signs yeah. not as like yeah. talent not as anything else but humans and and even like in my line of work sometimes which is like anyways it's just sometimes I don't feel I could feel like a billboard at, at mm. times or and it's just like who is um 
in a seat of power or who is there to like actually be like, oh yeah, this person is a human. They need a break or they need this or they need, you know, better care. Our, um, our society uh, here in North America and through a lot of the world is not one that prioritizes the well-being of vulnerable people. Mm -hmm. In fact, tends to do exactly the opposite. Mm -hmm. Tends to feed vulnerable people into the into the fire, you know, in order to in order it's exactly as you said to mm -hmm. see them we see them as dollar signs and not as humans and I think that that's a like a critical, critical issue. And we were talking about before before we started recording, we were talking about infrastructure and we were talking about how, well, I was saying personally, I don't know, I don't want to put words in anyone else's mouth, how a lot of us are short-term thinkers these days, mm -hmm. more than ever, you know what I mean? And mm -hmm. so it's really scary to to now jeopardize children on yeah. any, in any, in not just sport, in anything, mm -hmm. because we're, we're not thinking about their future. Yeah, but it's all recency bias too as well, right? Because, you know, it's... The NBA changes the model, and now you can be, you can hop from high school right into the league. Yes. So now the point of entry is mm -hmm. doing everything you can to get to college. Mm -hmm. But one of the lines from the article is that you know from one of the doctors like kids get to college broken. Like well, you get to college broken, but also to get there, you like I have you know some people that are close to me that mm -hmm. are in the basketball development system in Canada, and you know you're you need to get on people's radar, college radars earlier Absolutely. and earlier like it's insane that you yeah. do have like nine ten year old children yeah. that are on the radar yeah. of division one programs and that's ultimately it right because now the fight is not necessary to have a long-term career the the fight now and the struggle mm -hmm. that you know a lot of parents and the weight that's put on a lot of these young athletes just to continue to play the sport mm -hmm. right and so that that finish line is is so much stronger because the there are not a lot of opportunities to get NCAA scholarships, oh. right? And more so, the talent pool is getting wider because yeah. people like Masai have opened up the world yeah, to the game. More people, are right? Like the everywhere. opportunities. I went back to the Ivory Coast for the first time in 16 years in January, and people were could not stop raving about Giants of Africa having <laughs> had camps. And I'm enjoying it. Like, oh, you're in trouble. These guys came and they oh do these gosh. things. And like, remember, you know, uh, Eric's little brother? Yeah, he was in the camp. Like, he's doing so good. And those are the opportunities that are there. And now, this kid in Missouri feels like he's compete or his parents, perhaps the kid himself just likes the game. His yeah, parents right. or his coaches, whatever the structure is there, a young athlete does not have fully developed a decision-making mm -hmm. process. So who stops this kid from understanding? Kobe says something very interesting, talks about his own daughter was, who's 13 now, and she wants to play all the time. Mm -hmm. He's like, if I let her play all the time, she will play every weekend. <laughs> What's the point? He didn't start training series for basketball until he was 15, 16. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He is the single greatest Second greatest guard in history. <laughs> the second greatest guard in history. Yeah, now game. you're opening up. No, I just, second greatest yeah. guard in history of the game, but has had the longest career of any guard. He played 20 years. Yeah, yeah. And Phenomenal. that does not come from volume. It came from being hyper-specific about how he took care of his body. And yeah. talking about Messiah, seeing the amount of success we had this year with Kawhi, wow. a man who's 29 and basically has to have his, you know, his yeah. load managed, right? I was going to say load management. Yeah, like, raise a lot of <laughs> questions. Be like, why is the most elite <coughs> physical specimen in the NBA right now, which is no longer LeBron, it's mm -hmm. Kawhi, mm -hmm. cannot play 82 games, mm -hmm. right? And that's where those those questions start trickling down and you mm -hmm. can start looking at the system. But I think yeah. there's just a lot of steps where... Well, not, not every player has that choice either, Not every right? kind of player has and that so choice. And so some people yeah. have to get run through the ringer of 82 games. Mm -hmm. We want to... You have some things here. 
Allison. Oh boy, I I brought what, some. I brought what's some, the curveball? <laughs> <laughs> I brought some dis disparate kind of stuff. Uh, okay, I got two things that I brought in, um, and they are weirdly connected. I love but, it. But first of all, I'll tell you like where I I I'm I'm in this kind of uh, the zigzag that I'm in right now mm -hmm. is it's about decolonization. Okay. Mm. Um, and so that's a that's a, a word that we're reading a lot now in social medias and so on. Um, I um, I went I, to York U, so that word was like a part of everything. Yeah. And and that idea and that approach of seeing yeah. the world is yeah. was one of the most valuable parts for yeah. me of my education. Yeah. So. so I started. I think I started on this path when I started at law school, actually, which was now like 30 years, almost 25 years ago, 30 years ago. And my I had a professor for um, constitutional law who mm. was a First Nations woman. Her name is Mary Ellen Terpelafont. And she's teaching us about constitutional law, like how is Canada made? What's the law of the land? But she taught us this from uh, an indigenous lens. Mm. She taught us about the meaning of the nation-to-nation -nation treaty, the wampum. And we're looking at Canada's constitution in that context, which was kind of subversive on her part, honestly, because the other people who had other profs for that class learned that part of the law in a very with a different lens. Mm. So that, and I had come to law school partly having been radicalized by what happened at Oka, um, at Ganesatage and Ganawage. So... Uh, our relationship with uh, Indigenous people is really, really important to me and has been for a long time. So that whole decolonization process, although I wouldn't have called it that at that time, kind of started then. In the last sort of five, eight, ten years, thanks to Twitter, uh, there's a lot more voices that are being heard um, from Indigenous communities across the country. And I'm really really, really interested in understanding that viewpoint mm -hmm. as it evolves and also what's my part. So that's the key thing for me is what's my part in this thing. So I started to think about decolonizing and decolonizing my own mind uh, with respect Ooh, to... I like that. I like mm -hmm. that, decolonizing my own mind. Right, because we don't know. Like, we walk through the world, you know, I mean, as a white person, you know, I'm definitely, like, suffused with privilege all the time. And... I think somebody described it once, and I think this is really smart, about like being a fish in the sea. You know, when you have white privilege, you don't even know you have it. You're just like in the sea. You're like breathing the water. Mm, like yeah, it's yeah. nothing. Uh, you've got to work at that. Like you have to see it, recognize it, deal with it, work on it consciously all day, every day. Like this is the thing. And so decolonizing your mind is kind of a similar, similar process. Mm -hmm. It's being willing to hear, uh, to read, to understand to take on board, like, the horror of colonization uh, for people in this country. Uh, it's about uh, trying to understand, like, you know, what are my ways of being in the world that contribute to that or that can minimize that? So there were two books that I, that, that I wanted to tell you about that I'm, I just finished reading an amazing book by a woman named Alicia Elliott, mm -hmm. who's a Tuscarora from, um, from Ontario. And the book is called A Mind Spread Out on the Ground. Mm. And it's basically just a book. It's a collection of her essays. Uh, she came up in pretty significant poverty. There was mental health issues in her family. Uh, she became a teenage mom. And she basically had like every possible strike against her, but is a terrific writer and really, really conscious and really doesn't pull any punches <laughs> in this book. And... Um, 
I really, really enjoyed reading it, although it's super hard to read. And it's one of the one of the few books that, because I've read and a lot. You're saying hard because of. Uh, because of how bluntly she lays out uh, the reality of her life and her people uh, and all for all indigenous people and how bluntly she hands over to the reader, especially if you're me, for example, what my responsibility is and what I can do. Mm-hmm. Well, she doesn't even make any suggestions. She's like, this is a friggin' problem. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, in one of the essays, she actually writes about uh, people who write about the indigenous experience, um, about uh, how uh, some writers, some uh, native writers, have even come under uh, criticism for not being native enough or oh being gosh. too native or whatever, you know, and there's all mm. of this. And about how uh, so many writers who are not indigenous try to tell stories that involve indigenous people and they really, they fail because they have such a kind of monocultural view of what yeah. that's about. And then she, uh, so this is a paragraph that I I wanted to share with you because I thought it was uh, really beautiful. And also because I think a lot about, uh, uh, as somebody who's trying not only to decolonize, but also to to, uh, make a better space for myself in the world when it comes to, like, relationships with racialized people, with systemic discrimination, Mm -hmm. with all of that. I've always, I've thought, like, you know, you really need to have empathy, first of all. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And compassion, which is actually different. I'm learning because yeah. I focus a lot well, on she's empathy. Gonna, she's going to oh. go one further. Oh, okay. And here's what Alicia Elliott has Let's to say. She says, if you can't write about us with love for who we are as a people, what we've survived, what we've accomplished, despite all attempts to keep us from doing so, if you can't look at us as we are and feel your pe- pupils go wide, rendering all stereotypes a sham, a poor copy, a disgrace, then why are you writing about us at all? So this is a piece where mm-hmm. she's saying empathy's not enough. Yeah, no, it's you not. also have to write with love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, well, this just—that's the bar. My yeah. little brain just yeah, went, yeah. Poof. <laughs> yeah, because there's that a emoji. there's mm-hmm. a, there's a huge difference there. I think, and and uh, I think uh, there's a lot in this book where she talks about her complicated relationship with her parents, really dysfunctional family, and she talks about how hard it is to love. Uh, people who are terrible, <laughs> um, but you have to do it. Mm-hmm. So I think that is that that's a step further than empathy, and so I'm I'm really grinding my gears about that mm-hmm. now. I'm thinking I, about I, that. I more. like that because you know there's two things that that sparks for me. One is um, I've always felt like you, you know, this quote resonated with me, which is you can't teach anybody that you don't love. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can't teach them a thing. You don't love somebody, you can't teach them a thing, um, and that's. Ooh. Yeah, and that that is, you know, what if you're trying to push someone information down someone's throat, mm-hmm. yeah, but if you don't love that person, you're not equipped and, and not even uh, the, the right person to teach someone um, in, in the education space. But there was, I was interacting with a friend of mine who's a writer just through IG last night. She had posted a tweet that said something along the lines of, um, if POC writers wrote about white people, the way that white writers write about POC people, this is what it would be like. And it was wow. like the mo- like there was mayonnaise involved and there was like <laughs> all kind of stuff like I saw I need to go through that. I'm not on Twitter, but it was you know, I don't really yeah. active, but it was Twitter, retweeted on IG stories. I was talking about the wire the other day mm-hmm. um, with a group of people and <laughs> I think a lot of people don't realize that David Simon wrote yeah. The Wire. Mm-hmm. David mm-hmm. Simon wrote also Treme. Uh, which yeah. is on HBO, and both are 
both tell very black uh, inner city stories. Mm-hmm. The Wire being the single greatest show in TV history. I said it on the record. Um, <laughs> I mean Chernobyl. Watch Chernobyl. Oh my god. Chernobyl. Oh my god. It's Second so is Boardwalk Empire. Uh, oh, Boardwalk Empire. Yeah, uh, probably. Okay. But <laughs> there is there is a way. Um, there is a way to speak of of culture and people's history and people's realities. And I think, you know, to David Simon's credit, he involves so much different voices in the creation ideation process. There's consultation instead of storytelling. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with the question of white privilege, right? I can't I can't speak to that because I've been on the flip side of it. But there's a lot of narration of your reality that happens in a lot of cases. I'm, I'm going to tell you how you're living. Mm-hmm. It's like, Please, by all means, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Not being consulted as to mm-hmm. have a conversation about mm-hmm. what are your realities. Mm-hmm. And maybe, perhaps because I have a bigger platform, I may have the opportunity or a sharper platform, the opportunity to just get my message out there because there are a lot more barriers for you to put your content out that I perhaps will share what I've learned from you, right? There's there's a learning process. There's a two-way learning process and communication needs to happen. You look at that character from that movie, I'm pretty sure no one actually went and did a proper assessment or had a conversation with anyone about it that's why you get a lot of you know campaigns that are tone deaf Mm -hmm. you get a lot of you know you you get a lot of conversations that go through and it links into the next article i actually want to talk to which was the one we were talking about the other day from james Mm -hmm. james whitner of uh, the whitaker group down in the u.s who wrote a a piece for high snobiety which is uh, a streetwear and just culture platform online about diversity in in, in the corporate world yeah in short Black culture dominates how fashion, music, anything really is promoted, sold through, but also who is targeted by it. But a lot of the rooms that you would be in will not reflect that, mm-hmm. right? So at what point do we start a wider conversation about how diverse are the rooms that you're in and who is trying to tell that story? Are you just sitting to mind for insights and then execute against it? Or are you truly trying to contribute to the people to, to the realities of the people that you actually are you know, using to promote your product? building a foundation for a set product and campaigns or brands or anything? Or is is it just a transaction, right? Because you can transact with culture. You really can just transact with culture. And even with indigenous uh, history, coming into Canada, I learned a lot about that, right? Um, you hear a lot about uh, that plight in the U.S. because media and uh, movies and everything has told you sort of what that reality is, and you can sort of frame a point of reference. But from reading the newspaper and from just learning about Canadian history and seeing around me as I've traveled around the country, the reality of the indigenous community, being like, there is a lot that's not discussed here. Mm -hmm. And I don't know nearly enough people from that community to be informed. You could easily fall into the trap of reading someone else's narration of their realities Mm -hmm. and think that that's true, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like indigenous writing is not promoted mm-hmm. as as heavily as mm-hmm. it would have been from a white writer or anything so mm-hmm. the platforms in which you have the ability to put your message out to as well as a true reality mm-hmm. like in a lot of cases it gets drowned you know by false narratives created by people who just are narrating mm-hmm. on behalf of someone else mm-hmm. feeling that again it's their right or their opportunity for them to do so because they have the publisher the platform the website and the audience mm-hmm. and then they can go on TV to promote it mm-hmm. and then they'll do the signing tour mm-hmm. and continue to go through mm-hmm. the voices of the scent live in on in a lot of cases on platforms where people don't really read it newspapers op-eds or, or you know 
magazine and print form, which a lot of people shy away from. Well, so it's it's such a complex tug of war that really you have. Is. It's it's it's, it a, it's a tough place that we find ourselves in. And I find like um, you know in the process of decolonizing or or just you know in my work in the music industry, one of the things that I've been trying to do for a couple of years now is is challenge exactly what you're talking about, mm-hmm. which is the recognition that like. Like black culture and and like hip hop, for example, it's the it's the uh, best selling and most popular genre of music on earth mm-hmm. in every country in the mm-hmm. world, everywhere, yeah. including Canada. But when you look at my industry, we've done an absolutely piss poor job, pardon my language, on uh, uh, putting resources into mm-hmm. developing the independent hip hop sector here in Canada. Mm-hmm. I think that this is like, like, shockingly poor. Yeah, um, and I won't go through individual names, but when you list some of the most influential hip-hop artists to come out of this city who, when you look at yeah. this music that they've made, the yeah, yeah, level yeah. of talent, what they've created, and what they're doing yeah. now, like, yeah. there are, they they were not able, to, as, as much as they were able to make waves and kind of change the way hip-hop overall was created in the world, it's only very recently that anyone's able to have a, a career, and only... If they are really like embedded in the infrastructure in the U.S., yeah. not here. So there's buckets and buckets of work to be done there. Mm-hmm. But the first thing that has to happen is a recognition on the part of the people who have power and money in the yeah. industry that this mm-hmm. is actually a problem. Yeah. And that getting getting to that place, well, I mean, it's about systemic discrimination, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so, so this is not like person A or person B's mm-hmm. fault. There's no one person who's like making that happen, but there's a, a system-wide reluctance to look at it square in the face and go, yeah, actually I'm participating in this. Mm-hmm. And how I participate, how I yeah. personally yeah. participate in yeah. that and did for a long time was by, yeah, yeah, this is a problem, but I never said anything never about it anything and about I never it. did anything about it. And then I had a little, I had a little like, boop, something <laughs> changed in my yeah. brain and I went, I got to do something about this because... Yeah. It was literally like looking around and going, why isn't somebody doing something? And then, wait, 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 I'm somebody. Well, the thing is, um, we're lazy. We're lazy. We don't learn anymore. It's like we're out of school and no one wants to pick up that book or no one wants to learn. And the fact that you are actively learning first, because you said something, um, it actually triggered, but it was quite, uh, it was like an offhand comment about change and how the system... Um, the basketball system is new. See, I don't really know <laughs> many things, but you said, and it was change, and then something about the recency effect. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I'm just, and I think with social media, everything spreads like wildfire, mm-hmm. and we forget that it takes time mm-hmm. to change. So we have the awareness, mm-hmm. and then, but people are also we're lazier to like mm-hmm. dig deeper. Yeah. This morning, I was thinking about what I wanted to say today about Alicia Elliott's book. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, my we the mind immediately goes to everything that's wrong with the planet right yeah. now, right? <laughs> everything, like <laughs> zillion things. But a, 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 a sentence jogged through my brain, and I think it's a quotable quote, and it's this: I think that the power of apathy is greater than the power of power, mm-hmm. and that's a real problem because wow. we don't care. You know, it's interesting as well. Like when I'm thinking about this conversation that keeps driving to these big issues. And um, there's a book by uh, Michael and Dante called In the Skin of a Lion. And, mm. and part of it talks about the building of the bridge that connects um, the east and west side of Bluer, right? Like mm. it goes from Rosedale to the Danforth. And what's so, so interesting about that bridge to me was that they built it with the capacity for subway 30 years before Toronto had a subway. And they built it to connect a populated side 
of this ravine to a side of the ravine that really wasn't developed and mm-hmm. people weren't living there. And I think it's that type of like willing to that, that the subway capacity version of the bridge is more expensive mm-hmm. and building a bridge mm-hmm. right now to a place that doesn't need a bridge in this moment um, is also a serious endeavor, right? Like a lot of times we're just in this re- respond, react, respond, react. And I think that kind of foresight of like, well, what is this deep investment and what is this deep work that we need to do yeah. now? Not because there's an immediate thing that's like right down my throat, but when I look down the road, like, and I, and I think that comes into when we're talking about reconciliation mm-hmm. and we're talking about, um, you know, what has happened in this country around the indigenous communities. What is happening? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Today, like with the water, like, all, but the conversation is always like, oh, well, there's, you know, th- this... Um, community doesn't have water. This community is being more affected by climate change and it's respond, react. But it's like, what is that bigger vision that that we're all really behind? Well, Allison brought it up earlier and we were talking about, you know, political willingness to generate conversations at yeah. an all-time low because a lot of it is just about maintaining mm-hmm. institutions and attaining power and that fosters apathy. Mm-hmm. And it just relies, the entire system relies on discursive reactionary forces be like this is happening now it's like this is what we're doing and addressing it now never having any foresight throwing money at different things you read the newspaper every day you read news every day it's settlement here this there you know nothing's actually a policy change no one's no conversations being it's just this is what's happening how can i fix it now Mm -hmm. you know what's interesting i just am now actually making connection with our conversation about youth and mm-hmm. how we're, like, if we continue to, like, you know, for instance, if we take it in the sports context and we're just, we're teaching our youth to be that way, too. That's how, we're, like, putting them through systems like that and then they're growing up. And because and I, I first immediately thought about the word apathy and I'm, I'm on this committee for this incredible um, Canadian organization called Apathy is Boring. Uh-huh. And it's um, politically driven in terms of, like, their main focus is getting youth to vote getting them politically involved yeah Yeah, you you're part of it too right i just literally thought about apathy i just made the connection and i'm like that that's an amazing organization that's equipping our youth with tools and education to make changes and then there are also adults who are just seeing kids as again potentially dollar signs maybe that's being a little harsh and it really just comes to yes making changes in reading and and kind of owning up to the privilege that you may have had throughout your life but it's also really just in, like imparting what we're learning to our youth so that they can hopefully change what we've yeah, created. Yeah, we also have to, regardless of what structures are there, I just don't think there are enough opportunities for youth to actually mm-hmm. feel like they have an opportunity to make mm-hmm. change over mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. But it's happening. Yeah, well, a lot of the structures that exist are still, you know, still have the same people, same faces, yeah. and they're yeah. aging institutions, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm. there are a lot of forms, a lot of opportunities, a lot of organizations to speak to youth and give them the opportunity to attain what he seems a level of thought and impact, mm-hmm. but tangibly into the system, I don't think it transpires, mm-hmm. right? And in Canada, if we're not able to do so, I don't think it's anything that'd be too hard, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. for us to want. The political buy-in just needs to be there. You know, um, and I don't know what the forces are. Well, it's this is my thought. <laughs> this is a big thought. <laughs> <laughs> I like big thoughts. It's a big thought. 
Uh, you know, the the Western political systems, which all, you know, when we're talking about liberal states, mm -hmm. liberal democratic states, we all came about kind of in opposition to monarchy, right? Mm -hmm. So there is, this is where it all, it starts in the 18th century. It's like, we're going to get rid of the kings. We're going to end monarchy. And that was a movement that's driven specifically by incredibly entitled white men, like privileged white mm -hmm. men, and they made rules. Mm -hmm. And those rules are the foundation of Western democracy now. So it's it's the the idea of human rights. But it starts with, like, freedom of speech, mm -hmm. freedom of association. It's all freedom from, freedom from, freedom mm -hmm. from. Property. And where's responsibility to? Mm -hmm. Where's that piece? Uh, but well, also, like, because the, the, yeah. there needs to be a corresponding yeah. list in order to participate in a democratic society. Mm -hmm. It's not enough to have freedom from, you also need to have responsibility too. Mm -hmm. And then if mm -hmm. I was going to reorder the list, I would start with uh, the first human right that we all need to have is love and respect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then you, that needs to sit, you know, in the same way that freedom of speech, yep. you know, that sits well, at the yeah. foundation of democracy. Why like, not love? There's this um, idea you hear a lot, and, and I think it ties into when we're talking about literature and writing a place of love it talks it's in the fashion industry we the high snob variety article you're talking about it's in systems of care where it's always you know nothing about us without us for all the listeners out there the environment we are recording in doesn't seem to be that important because you can't see the space but to get beautiful sound whether it's for a podcast, recording music, or even for film, TV, and advertisements, the space you're in and how it runs matters. That's why we record Stay Reading out of Post Office Sound in Liberty Village. From the raw audio to creating a sound bed and all of the magic that happens in post, the difference can not only be heard, it can be felt. So to all the creatives out there, if you need great audio, think Post Office Sound. I read this earlier this year, um, The Terrible, and it is an incredibly, like, I've never read a memoir like this, and I'm, I'm very much a fiction reader, but um, she basically, I, I don't want to ruin her name, um, because, like, I don't know if I'll pronounce it properly. Ursula Daly Ward? Yeah. Yes. Okay. I'm terrible yeah. at pronouncing <laughs> certain things, but she um, wrote a memoir, and it was, it's like a mixture of poetry, and um, it's just like a, a mixed media storytelling way to tell her life. And, and immediately I thought about it when you were talking about your book, Allison, but I, so I'm going to read this passage and it basically kind of explains the title. You may not run away from the thing that you are because it comes and comes and comes as sure as you breathe, as certain. The thing is deep inside your linings, way down in the morrow. People have a lot of words for it. There are 10,000 10, names for it and you. Wherever you are, it catches up, catches you up. It catches you in South Africa. Wherever you are and whatever it is, the terrible is trying to grip you. And sometimes you're walking down the street and it tries to knock you clean off your feet and send you right underground. The terrible comes like a bang at the, in the night. It takes a drink and several more and comes to plague you in the morning. It damn near poisons you with all the drink it needs to stay alive. It toys with you the morning after, stays the entire day, squeezing you by the shoulder shoulders, making your hands shake. It smiles at you, the terrible, sitting, arms folded in the corner of the room. It just can't t help itself. It just needs friends. And so your your focus is like decolonization. And a lot of my focus lately has been mental health. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm reading all sorts of literature from, um, 
from, you know, psychologists mm-hmm. um, to to memoirs. And a lot of, and, and I realize actually almost every book I pick up, there's always some sort of mental health aspect, right? Because that's at the end of the day, our life, right? And I, I don't know, I read this um, yesterday, like I was trying to pick out a passage. And I think when I read that too, it's just, we all have trauma on some, some form or fashion, whether it's inherited, whether, whether it's our own. Um, we have things that as we get older too, it's just, it weighs on us. And, and it's just interesting to see in all aspects in, in any, you know, whatever industry we focus on or, or parts of our life that we focus on, how, how we deal with that. You know what I mean? I'm doing a lot of, um, my focus this year has been learning and like doing a lot of inner work, um, which has caused me to nap a lot. <laughs> I'm like, everyone's like, so what are you up to these days? I'm like, I'm a part-time napper, guys. Um, and like, I, re- and I, I read, again, like I said, I read this earlier this year, maybe even late last year, I can't remember. And when I reread this passage, I was just like, because I had folded it down when I, first, when I, when I read it, um, the book the first time. Um, so it was easy for me to find it. I I just I just sat with it for a second. Like, what do you guys think of? One of the pieces that I have here is from Damon Young. And um, I don't know if anyone knows who he is, but he's the co-editor of Very Smart Brothers and The Root, oh, uh, online platforms uh, from black writers. He's contributed to GQ and Esquire. And he wrote this book called What Doesn't, what Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker. Mm. <laughs> and it's basically, it's, it's, it's a humorous autobiography, basically, at this point in his life. And he's not old like he, he's not recapping his life on, on the tail end of it he's in his 30s i know that she's very young too yeah. and this is not humorous yeah. but it's beautiful and, i love that oh my goodness but he he just recently she's also became black. a father he recently became a father purchased a home and finally has attained a level of his life where he felt stability in his work and he wrote this book and it had some some quotes earmarked but from him from listening to him talking about the purpose for this book he wrote that book for those exact reasons. Like he finally uh, owned his own home, which his parents never did. He has built, he's got married and has a stable household, which he did not have with his parents. And is finally doing what he loves, what his parents did not do. Yeah. And the purpose of him writing this book is ultimately exercising a lot of his demons that he had mm-hmm. and recapping his life, the complexity of being a black man and growing up in Pittsburgh and then developing and growing into, you know, the writing ass dude, like mm. he, like he calls mm-hmm. himself, and making peace to be like the the expectations of him being a black male, what he should be in contrast to who or what he was, wearing skinny jeans and and, and DNG t shirts mm-hmm. when everybody was wearing fat from Nietzsche. <laughs> these 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 you know inner traumas and and complexes that he had that he's now laying bare because he's achieved a level of life where he is happy, mm-hmm. right? And he has found more in hearing talk about it ever since. You know, you read through it and it's. You know, as a black man, you know, this is, there's a lot you draw parallels to. Oh, sorry. sorry I thought it was sliding. It. <laughs> um, there's a lot of parallels you draw to, but that letting go, you know, like letting mm. go of these, uh, of these trauma and being very vocal about them, uh, those very things that, like, come on. <laughs> um, these these very I was reading it when we were in San Francisco. Super. That's why. <laughs> so Never there's a there's a, a ticket for Raptors versus Golden State inside yeah, of this book. Was a, a distracting moment, also a full circle <laughs> moment. Is there a passage from this that you wanted to share? Uh, I, I mean, it's 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 out of sync to what we're we're talking specifically. That's but cool. I think as Throw we it. let go 
uh, it's important to have conversations um, that allow you to just empathize and exercise a lot of these demons that you have. And mental health starts there. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my later years, I've been very conscious of of speaking up um, mm-hmm. both to young mm-hmm. and, and, and older people uh, about the things I've been through and how they've affected me. And I think holding on to a lot of these things, whether it's in long-form book format mm-hmm. or just being open to having conversations yeah. or where those conversations really start, the terrible really lies within. Mm-hmm. If you never, it, it, it languishes within yourself if you're not really willing to open it up. And this is a man who's built, wrote an entire book to let go of it, right? Yeah. So. And I think that the 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 kind of grim truth is that the structures of society mm-hmm. are built to encourage the terrible, mm-hmm. to perpetuate the terrible. Yeah. Um, by, you know, when you have like, you know, kids that are coming up in like, you know, difficult economic situations or family situations or whatever, the terrible mm-hmm. is there, mm-hmm. you know, the te- it gets planted in there and it's that, you know, the, the systems, their whole deal is like, let's replicate this. Well, so and it gets planted in get business out. school too, because. you know, where it's like, you know, d- what matters at the end of the day. Yeah, I'm so curious to see what because is. Well, the, the because is big statement, but it's true. You know, patriarchal capitalism, colonialism requires the agony of vulnerable people yeah. in order to be successful. But you know what I, and that includes kids. But I also think, like, uh, it, but it, I also think it's fear. And I actually have a thing, but we ha- we're gonna have to kind of start wrapping up the conversation. <laughs> but I also think it's fear because, um, you know, as we get older, we we make fun of like our parents and their parents' parents, and then you know how we're raising our children in the sense that like. Oh, you, especially in the states, you can't go a parent. You can't go around without getting sued by a parent these days, or you have to make this the playground safer, or you have to. So what's happening is we're not allowing our children or ourselves to um, reflect on the terrible. We're creating bubbles around everyone instead. You know what I mean? So yes, there's this the the systematic thing, but again, I keep on going back to just like the individual or the family home and being raised, or or if you're you know if you don't have a family, if you're in another sort of care, like it. We're 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 trying too heavily, and again, I, it's blanket statements, but like too heavily to protect people from things. And are so, are we doing it though? Or no, or are we like, being encouraged to do it by a system that prefers? Okay, us fine. To yes, be you're right. <laughs> I, yeah. I, yes. It's perpetuation. It of is system, perpetuation right? of the system. Like where, where no one's challenging, yeah. you know, the yeah. existing system that you have. Yeah, and it's, it takes the sparks. Right? It takes ownership. It yeah. takes people to stand up. Um, and none of us wants to come out and go, actually, I've been brainwashed. Yeah. Like, none of us wants to. Like, when you see that, and then you see that, like, all my life that I didn't say anything about the thing that was happening, mm-hmm. I let it continue. I never mm-hmm. said anything. That's my job. Yeah. Like, that, I'm responsible mm-hmm. for that in my tiny, tiny way. Mm-hmm. Like, when we come to, like, systemic, systemic discrimination or whatever, you know, it's systemic, it's nobody's problem. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's implicit, if you will. But when you're confronted with it and when you see it, when someone says, this is how this works, this thing happens and that stops that and mm-hmm, this stops mm-hmm. that. But once you've seen that and you choose then to do nothing, then yeah. it's explicit. Oh, yeah. Then it's explicit yeah. and then you are complicit. So listeners, that. you are part of this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Let's make a change. Well, well I, think, I think that's where we come back to, you know, this passion for reading and... Yeah this really trying to go beyond the notion of like everyone read the same book and all that but come to whether it's print you know graphic novels magazines books like and and also really going outside of 
you know, what you were, was on your high school curriculum or what's, you know, on um, Heather's picks, mm-hmm. like in mm-hmm. the front of Indigo, but finding voices mm-hmm. um, that, that are not just like confirming what you already have experienced and kind of like an echo of what your aspiration is, but also like that challenges you, that, mm-hmm. that makes you uncomfortable, that brings you into a space that um, you wouldn't have gone into. If you're not uncomfortable, you know? you're not growing, you're not learning. <laughs> You said yeah. Heather's picks. I was just laughing. She has some good picks, but but there's also a lot of stuff that you would never that. have heard of. There's more than the go to Heather's picks. No, like, 100%. There's, there's, there's and no, there's more than Oprah's whatever book club. And and apparently, like, Reese Witherspoon has a book club, and I've actually read a couple of her picks, and they're great. <laughs> but, like, and it's, sometimes you need that curation. That's At the end of the day, that's what we're doing. But yeah. it is important to go beyond that. What's our final question? Are we... Uh, yeah, just, I mean, the final question is going to be, is oh, just what's the biggest takeaway? Y- your takeaway <laughs> from today. But I think adding to your takeaway um, from this conversation is um, one book or author that you would recommend um, that wouldn't be on one of those mm. like bestseller lists necessarily. Maybe they have been um, or one of those like um, book kind of recommendations. Well, I think, and I I have now bought probably half a dozen copies of this book and given it to people that Mm -hmm. I know. It's a book by an American woman named uh, Ijeoma Oluo, um, and she wrote a book called So You Want to Talk About Race. Mm -hmm. Oh, I've heard of that one. And it is fantastic. It is uncomfortable, but it is uh, brief, very lucid, uh, and kind of lays out uh, why it's tough for us to talk about race and how, what you need to do to get over that, because <laughs> we all need to get over it. So that's a book that I think uh, certainly everybody of my particular uh, skin color needs to read. <laughs> you know, those of us who have privilege and who have uh, awkward feelings about talking about race, mm-hmm. we got to do it. We have to read it. And uh, But also for people of color as well, it gives you some resources to just think about how to have that conversation in a way that's like productive and, and good and doesn't it doesn't protect you from the reality of it, but it, it gives you a, a place to start. So it's also great, great to read something that you've read to know where you're coming from, mm-hmm. too. So it's like, yeah. it's, yeah, that's a great recommendation. I, I haven't really gone back to a lot of his body at work, but it's really an important book I've read um, recently uh, was The Ali Anthology by Jonathan Eig oh. and Ali A Life. And it's lengthy. For those who like short forms, it's lengthy. <laughs> commit to it um but it's an oral history of ali's life from the various people who have from neighbors to Mm -hmm. kid at a corner store like various voices across jonathan i comes from a journalism background and he was thorough and piecing together the life of muhammad ali at every possible stage and i i didn't physically bring it because i gave it to someone i was (laughs) like you need to read this he's been going through something so like this will be great for you to understand the complexity of life even from one of the greatest athletes of all time and it's remarkable. Wow. It's 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 dialed in to, to the spice moments to understand the complexity of the man and how he changed all throughout how the different factors came into his life to impact him and where the what the root causes of those were. There's a lot of, of, of trauma that led a man to feel overconfident in a lot of ways and put that front to the world and and impact the life of so many different people positively for those mm-hmm. who adulate, adulated him but in his inner circle a lot of struggle. And to read that piece by piece story by by Ike has been uh, great. I haven't gone back to a lot of his catalog because he's written about 
uh, Louis Gehrig and others over mm-hmm. there. And I'm not huge on uh, on baseball, but what he did for Ali, I think, is the most compelling. I'm a nonfiction reader by 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 nature, and it's the most compelling oral history and autobiography I've read. So I definitely need to pick that. Yeah, I'm definitely going to pick that. It's 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 a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. And it's like a vacation coming up. My recommendation, uh, I brought an author, um, Jamaica Kincaid. Oh, yeah. She's yeah. my literary hero. She's great. Um, not just for content, but her use of punctuation. Um, <laughs> I love Changed that. how yeah. I write straight up. Like, it's it's phenomenal. It brings such real human voice onto the page. But what I would also say with Jamaica Kincaid, check her out. But the, the amount of authors from the Caribbean that have won, mm-hmm. you know, Nobel Prize in mm-hmm. Poetry, mm-hmm. Uh, Derek Walcott, Nobel Prize in Literature, V.S. Naipaul, and um, there's just uh, so many incredible authors from the Caribbean and the Caribbean diaspora mm-hmm. um, that that mm-hmm. have some of the best books I've mm-hmm. ever read, um, and so it definitely... Quickly, what's so specific about her punctuation? It have, goes... Have, have it, oh, is she it. pro or against the semicolon? <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, the thing about it is, like, I mean, you, you can go pages... With one sentence. Oh, wow. Like, or, like, she'll... So, kind of like uh, Virginia Woolf? Kind of like Stream of Consciousness? Stream of Consciousness, but, like, when you see the way that, like, again, she brings voice to it, like, we'll we'll do this real quick, real quick. So, (laughs) um, we were not friends. We walked together in companionship based on fear. Fear of things we could not see. And when those things were seen, we often could not really comprehend their danger. So, confusing um, was much of reality. It was only after we had left the immediate confines of our village and were out of the sight of our parents that we drew close to each other. We could talk, but our conversation was always about terror, how it could not be so. We had seen that boy drown in the mouth of the river we crossed each day. If our schooling was successful, most of us would not have believed we had witnessed such a thing. And it goes on, but it's like, it's such, she, her use of punctuation um, and telling stories. You know what I, okay, I obviously recommend The Terrible. It's, um... It's an incredible memoir. I, I don't read, I'm reading more and more nonfiction, um, but it's kind of like a fictionalized memoir in a way. And um, and I was just, I brought in a, a local magazine. Is it like a firma? It's published by Castor and Pollux. Um, and I just love, I love anything local. I've always been a huge supporter of anything local. So I brought this in as kind of the thing to talk about. And what I love, I was going to read out of it and I already lost the page. Um, there is a, a portion, like, a, um, I don't know, I guess a series of interviews, like short interviews mm-hmm. about what are you so afraid of? Mm-hmm. Um, it's part of the, their age issue, um, which I really like. And it's just, I just like um, seeing young creatives and um you know local people just really doing what's passionate and and really trying to have a voice and and so i would i would recommend this magazine but yeah yeah, i I think i think that's it though mark's late for for work (laughs) we we have five minutes Um, no he had to be there at 11. (laughs) well we, we really appreciate both of you being with us and it's been an amazing conversation. As always, you bring out some literature, you bring out some writing, you talk about what you're reading, and you end up talking about everything else you could imagine. <laughs> it, it goes um, all over the place, but full circle and back again. So thank you for being a part of Stay Reading. Well, thank, thank you. you guys for fostering conversation too as well, because I think there's just not enough of it these days. And it's important for platforms like this to just generate conversation between different people. So thank you. 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Stay Reading. And if you want to find any of the titles we discussed today or learn more about our guests, you can always check at double underscore stay reading on Instagram. And wherever you listen, don't forget to rate, comment, subscribe, and share.